0: Three Circle, what a great day. Let's give the Lord praise. One more time, man. Let's praise God. You guys can be seated. It's going to be a great day here at Three Circle. Great to see all of you. We're so excited about many things coming up, but I want to talk to you for one moment, to the men in the room and the ladies. You've got a man who you need to get to this, all right? We have the Man Up Men's Conference. We do this every year. Coming up this Friday night. Now, I know we all have a ton going on, guys. I know you have a million other things you could be doing, but I am asking you to move your schedule around and make a way to be here Friday night. We used to do Friday and Saturday, but we understood that you guys are so busy. We we just moved the Saturday session to Friday. We do two sessions on Friday. So all you have to do is be able to clear one evening from your schedule to come hang out 100 of other men that are like-minded, love Jesus, and trying to grow in their faith. Hey, man, you need to be here. You're going to be encouraged. Uh, a good friend of mine, Pastor James Griffin, incredible Atlanta pastor, will be with us a Friday night. It's going to be great food, great music and worship, and you're going to leave encouraged and inspired. So, Every guy in the room, once you go to that QR code right there on your phone, you can sign up there. You can go to the Hub, which is out in the lobby. You can also sign up there. Uh, There's lots of opportunities for you to sign up. You can go to the app and online. So let us know you're coming. Bring some buddies with you. Friday night is going to be absolutely incredible, and we're ex- really, really excited about it. Now, today, I'm going to I'm gonna tell you in just a moment who's going to be coming to speak, but before he does, I want to catch you up on where we are. So last week, we had Compassion uh, Sunday. It was awesome. I think you've already heard just how many kids were sponsored. Their lives are going to be changed forever. Well, the Elijah series is a series that we have been in, and we're going to jump right back into it today. All right. And how many of you enjoyed the Elijah series so far? Incredible, uh, incredible character from the Bible that we're learning more and more about. So uh, what we want you to do is kind of get your heart ready now to jump back into that series. And today the person that's going to be taking us into the Elijah series, someone very special to me and a three circle church, Pastor Nick Williams has been our Daphne campus pastor for the past four and a half years. That's Pastor Nick and Deanna and his beautiful family. And Nick's actually my brother-in-law's. That's my sister and that's Nan's sister, and those are my little nieces, and they mean a ton to us. About five years ago, Nick was a very successful construction business guy in Tuscaloosa, and God called him to ministry. He, I remember the call that I got from him. He left everything that he knew. To jump into ministry and to begin to train to be a pastor. And then over the next year, by God's grace, he was able to come and be a part of our team. In the four and a half years he's been the pastor of the Daphne campus, that campus by itself, not just as a part of Three Circle, but if you took that church by itself, has been one of the fastest growing churches in the state of Alabama, all right, right there in Daphne. It is astounding the growth and what God has done uh, with Pastor Nick leading that campus, well, a few months ago, through a lot of prayer, Pastor Nick and his family feel that God is calling them to go back to their hometown of Thomasville and lead our campus there so while we is bittersweet we 're sad to see him go we 're excited about what god 's uh, going to do we 're excited about the many, many people who are going to be brought to Christ in nick indiana 's hometown for the glory of God. And so today, Pastor Nick is preaching at all of our campuses today. We're excited about that. And what I want to ask you to do is pray for him and his family. Uh, Moves are always tough, even though it's exciting. Pray for our Daphne campus. We have incredible new leadership there. And we believe God's going to write a next chapter for both of those campuses. But we want you to lift up Pastor Nick as he steps into a new time of ministry at our Thomasville campus. And today, I would invite you to help me welcome to the stage. Pastor Nate Williams.
1: All right well I'm excited to be here today Uh, as I do the commute back and forth. This is the last one so this might be the shortest one. (laughs) Give you the cliff notes. Uh, I'm excited to be here man it's been great. Uh, I've known Pastor Chris since I was uh, 17 when my wife and I started dating in high school and he was kind of around and Uh, He's kind of grown into where he's now kind of like a, he's much, much, much older than I am. Uh, And so he's grown into more of a grandfatherly figure, uh, speaking into my life. And so I I appreciate him. Uh, I may have more gray hair, uh, but he's a little older than me. Uh, And so we'll jump in. Again, we're back in the Elijah series today. It's been a great series to to learn from and to teach on. Uh, So we're back there today. Uh, And what I'm going to do is, because we missed a week, is I'm going to try to catch you up. I'm going to catch you up from where we've been the last few weeks, because last week was Compassion Sunday. After I catch you up, we'll read the text for today, and then we'll jump in. And so Elijah starts, 1 Kings uh, chapter 17 is where it starts. Uh, And Elijah just kind of shows up on the scene. You don't have a lot of background about him. Uh, It goes from talking about uh, what King Ahab had done at the end of chapter 16, straight into uh, Elijah showing up on his front porch. uh, And telling him, he said this in 17.1, it says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew, nor rain these years except by my word. So Elijah just shows up, knocks on the door, and said, here's the deal. It's not going to rain for a few years until I tell it to rain. And the reason being is because if you look back in Deuteronomy, and Pastor Chris pointed this out, Deuteronomy chapter 11, in the law of God, it said if you seek after other gods, if you, if you seek after idols, there will be no rain. And it goes into a lot more detail than that, but that's basically it. If you want to look it up, Deuteronomy 11, 16, and 17. Uh, but it was a command, a, a law that God put in place. He said, if this happens, this is what's going uh, to happen to you. And so we're seeing that play out. And so Elijah shows up, tells the king that, uh, and then God sends him into the wilderness. He sends him into the wilderness and says, go and meet this widow lady and she'll feed you, basically. Tell her to feed you. And so he goes, there's a portion before that where he's fed by ravens I forgot about, but he goes into the wilderness, uh, and he says, hey, feed me. And she says, well, I'm going to feed, we got a little bit of bread, basically, flour. I'm going to cook it, feed myself and my son first, and then we're going to die together. So you can't get any food. It's basically the gist of the message. And he goes, no, wait a minute. God said feed me, so you feed me first. And so she did, and God multiplies the food so they all have enough to eat for quite some time. So God does a miracle there. And then as a part of that, later on, as they still have food to eat, the young lady's, uh, the widow lady, her son dies. He gets sick and he dies. And she says, is this why you've come to me, to kill my son, basically? And he says, give him to me. They go upstairs. He lays him on a bed, lays on him three times and prays uh, for God to bring him back. And on the third time, God revives him, and brings him back. So she takes him, or he takes him downstairs and he says this, see your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. And the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. And so we see where another miracle is done. It's the first resurrection in the Bible, as Pastor Chris pointed out. And then he moves on and he gets back and says, After some time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And so he sends him out and he says, Now go back to the king and tell him it's about to rain. And it doesn't rain until the end of chapter 18, and a lot of stuff happens in the middle. He goes and finds Obadiah, who is a servant of the king. And the king and Obadiah have split ways because they're looking for water. It's so dry. And we've all experienced droughts, right? We've all experienced drought. This drought is to the point to where the king doesn't even have water for his horses. And he's saying, Let, let's go find some water so our horses don't die. It's that bad. And we've—I I know we experienced a drought back in early 2000 to the point in Thomasville where our whole lake dried up. We had for years. And we were out there catching fish with our hand because there was no oxygen in the water and they were just swiveling up and dying but we've also had droughts in our country that have lasted a lot longer than that uh, you may remember the dust bowl if you're a, a fan of history the dust bowl uh, that happened in the midwest uh, where for different reasons one was the great depression was happening one was farming practices because the great depression had changed and they started trying to figure out cheaper ways to do it the other was a massive drought and so you had this perfect storm of things that made these massive dust storms blow up for the, throughout the 30s. Uh, but it was so dry and so arid. Looking at these pictures you can just feel the, the weight that Israel would have been feeling as they went through a three and a half year drought. Like it says at the beginning of, in verse 17 that it was so dry dew would not even be on the ground. That means there was no moisture in the air to even create dew that we get out in the morning and get mad because it gets our slippers wet, right? And the kids get out in their socks and now their socks are wet. But it was so dry, the air was so dry, there wasn't even enough moisture to create dew. And so just imagine, your skin would have been dry. Your lips would have been cracking. Your eyes would have felt sandy. It was a terrible, terrible situation. The economy would have been wrecked. Livelihoods ruined. livestock dead. So this isn't just a drought that we read over like it's not a big deal. This is a massive economic event uh, that caused all these trials. And so then we see where he goes and he finds Ahab. And he calls him the Troubler of Israel. And he challenges him to a duel, basically, between the gods. And he says, go get all your prophets, 450 of Baal, 400 of Asher, and we will challenge them on Mount Carmel. And so they go, they, they build the altars to Baal, they worship all day, they sing, they cut themselves, the Bible says, to where blood is flowing out on the altar. They've cut themselves so bad. And it gets to the point where Elijah's like, all right, that's enough. Now let me do my job. And he gets his sacrifice ready, he builds... The thing there, and he puts his ox on it or his bull, and he calls down, he prays this prayer. He says, Answer me, O God, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. He says, Answer me, God, that they may know you are God, and turn their hearts back, because the whole reason this drought started in the first place was because of their idolatry that they were in. And so that brings us. To, after it happened, they sacrificed all the prophets. And it brings us to where we're at today, which is 1 Kings 18, 41-46. So let's read it together. 1 Kings 18, 41-46. It says this, And Elijah said to Ahab, Get up, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain. So basically go celebrate. The drought's about to end. So Ahab went up, ate, and drank. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down to the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. It's about to be a real flood. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, which is where his palace was, his capital. In the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for the truth of your word that we can come together. uh, Lord, and look at a story that's a thousand years old, but look at a story that is still applicable to us because we know that your word is alive and breathing, Uh, that you speak to us through your word and through what you say to the people of Israel. God, may we take it and apply it to our lives. May you convict us Where we need convicting, may you encourage us, Lord, where we need encouraging as believers. Lord, may you be magnified and glorified in all that we do here today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And so we catch this story on the back end of this exciting uh, event at Mount Carmel, where all the prophets have been slaughtered, there's fire coming down from heaven, there's altars being built, there's people cutting themselves, so it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And so we come off of that and and, uh, Elijah tells Ahab, go and eat and rejoice for there's rain coming. And he goes and then he prays. And we and then after he prays, we look at it, we see that it actually starts raining. So we have to answer this question or make this point. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, right? Because in James 5:17, it says that. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. But we have to understand this that Elijah had a prayer life like no one else. Elijah had a prayer life like no one else. I don't think so far today we're O for o, or we're O for four. As far as people that have prayed for it to rain in a little cloud come up over the bay and it start raining. Has anybody ever prayed that before? Has anybody ever raised anybody from the dead? Nobody. All right, so we're 0 for 5 today, this morning. And so he had a prayer life like nobody else, but what made this possible? What made this possible? It was a communion that he had with God. We see throughout the story of Elijah, where he and God are having conversation back and forth, where he's obedient to God's command, where God says, go, and he goes. Where he bends down in humility and he prays for things to happen, and that things happen, we see that Elijah prayed with the expectation of God's actions. Elijah prayed with the expectation of God doing something. <coughs> Excuse me. He did this when he raised a little boy from the dead, right? He didn't just take him up there like I would have if I would have been doing this, and I would nobody had ever been raised from the, in the, uh, from the dead before, and I would have said, "Give me your son." I'm going to take him upstairs and I'm going to pray over him. Right? You lay him on a bed, you lay on him. I might have prayed once and then got up and checked his pulse and been like, you know what, he ain't coming back. Yeah, it's done. He's done. But we see that Elijah prays not once, not twice, but three times. He's persistent in his prayer. He expects God to do something. I'm convinced he would have prayed at least seven more times because that's what he does on Mount Carmel waiting on the rain to come. And then we see at Mount Carmel where he does the same thing. After he prays once, he says, go and check and look. Rain doesn't come, so he goes back to prayer. He does it again. Go look. Doesn't come. See, Elijah prayed with the expectation of the promises of what God had given him. God had said, go and tell Ahab it's gonna rain, and Elijah believed it. He believed it. And you and I have scripture and promises that we can pray as believers, that we can pray and hold on to, that we can grab onto and go, God, I want this to happen. And hold on to God's prayer. And we too can pray with an expectation of what God's going to do. I pray for my kids every morning with the expectation that one day they will be saved. Because Scripture tells us to pray for them that they will come to know Christ. I pray with an expectation, a humble expectation of God save my sons and daughters. See, but the problem is that often we as believers get in a dangerous, dangerous spot. Where we often demand God's action and then agree to pray or have faith later. We get a dangerous, dangerous spot as believers where we go, we say, hey, we believe in God, and then we start making demands on God to prove himself. In pride, we make demands instead of in humbly coming before God and going, God, I just need your help. God, I want these people to come to know Christ. Please let it be so. God, I want wisdom, and you tell me in your word that if I ask and believe it, that I will gain wisdom. The Bible tells us not to be like a double-minded man, asking for one thing and then expecting nothing. But many of us are, and many of us are at some point or another where we pray for something and we go, man, I hope it works. Scripture tells us the opposite. We hold to those promises. We don't make demands from God. We humbly submit our requests. We don't pridefully demand God do things for us. See, we see that Elijah had a prayer life like no one else. But what made this possible? What made it possible? The key is this, James 5.16, we've talked a lot about 5.17 in this series, and 5.16 gives us a clue to why he was such a powerful prayer. It says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Right? We all need accountability. We all need to pray for each other and hold each other accountable and encourage each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person, it doesn't say the power of a person has great uh, power. It doesn't say the prayer of just anybody that wants to pray has great power. The prayer of the unbeliever that has never submitted to the Lordship of Christ, but says a prayer every now and then, that prayer too has great power. No, it says the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And you and I know this to be true. We all know it as humans instinctively to be true. Because as we work together and as we do life together, we don't. when we need prayer in our life, if we're at work, when I was in construction, like it wasn't, and I need a prayer, I didn't go to the guys who were standing around the water cooler telling dirty jokes and using foul language and go, hey buddy, I need you to pray for me. Right? That's not what I did. I don't today. But I go to the men who live distinctly differently, who I know are living a life seeking after the things of God, and I go, you know what, will you pray for me? It's why we know those grandparents that we had that seemed that were righteous people and had powerful prayer lives. We go, my whoever... Man was a prayer warrior. And if I had to bet, I would bet they were righteous people. Righteous people. See, we know it instinctively, but so often we want to act like it doesn't apply to us in our personal life. Right? We can live one way and have a prayer, a powerful prayer life on the other hand, but scripture does not tell us that. Proverbs 1529 says the same thing about righteousness, 1 Peter 3:12 and Psalms 34:15. And we could go on about how the prayers of a righteous man are heard. If you look at the word righteous, because we go, man, that just sounds kind of, it's a big word, and I don't really understand what it means, and it means this. It implies moral transformation to uh, to God's law. It implies moral transformation to God's law. And so it's also what we call sanctification. When we become believers, we grow in Christ. We want to be more like Christ. We love Him more. We want to spend time with Him. We want to spend time in the Word of God. And we grow, and the Holy Spirit molds us into new people. They mold uh, our morals into something different than what they were before. And this molding is called sanctification, and that is righteousness that we're growing in. We're growing in the things of God. And a lot of times we think, man, the, the, the Christian life is hard, but it's really not. We, it's a circle, right? The circle of life, like the Lion King. said, This is the spiritual circle of life. Right? It goes, we become believers. We fall in love with what Christ has done for us and who he is. We start spending time with him and studying his word. And because we're spending time with him and studying his word, we know the promises we can pray. And we know how to pray according to his will. And so then we start seeing our prayers have power. So then we spend more time with God. And then we become more sanctified. And then we become, pray praying get stronger. And it's just a circle. It's just a circle. Sometimes we take three steps back. But it's a circle of as we spend time with God, we grow in sanctification, our prayers become more powerful. See, we've got to be careful of this. We cannot live like the non-believing world around us and expect to have the prayer life or impact of the saints. We can't live like the non-believing world around us and expect to have a prayer life or an impact on culture like the saints of old did. Saints of the Old Testament, New Testament, current day people that we all point toward. and. I guarantee you Billy Graham had the, one of the strongest prayer lives that you would ever see. People like D.L. Moody and these other giants of our faith have, had strong, strong prayer lives. I think it was uh, St. Augustine said that it, I'm so busy in my day, I need to spend the first three hours in prayer just to get it all done. Right? Because it means that much. See, we are men and women set apart for a mission. As believers, we are men and women set apart for a mission. When we call ourselves Christians, I think we forget that that means we claim Christ. In the mission He's given us. Oftentimes we claim Christ and then we live distinctly different. But as true believers, we are men and women set apart for a mission. This doesn't mean that we can't laugh, that we can't create beautiful things, that we can't sing great songs, that we can't enjoy life like so many people think. When you're pushing to righteousness, that must mean you're boring. Right? Y'all can laugh. Y'all know it's true. Like you think, well, he, you know, he's a Christian. He's probably boring. It's true. I mean, people just feel that way. But that does not mean that we can't enjoy the blessings God has given us. It just means we take the things of God serious and enjoy His blessings like nobody else. It means we take the things of God serious and enjoy the blessings of nature and art and music and family and friends. We enjoy those like nobody else can because of the freedom we have in Christ. See, we have to push in to righteousness. We have to push in to the things of God. When you look at nature... From the atheist perspective, it's just something that's happening, right? It's just something that's kind of taking place. It'll change in a million years, and we won't be here to see it. But for the believer, nature is something that reflects the personality of God that he gave us as believers, and we can see him in nature, and we can sit there and rejoice because all the good things he's given us. I read a book one time that talked about how the nature of a puppy portrays God as much as a thundercloud does with lightning and thunder popping. You get two different sides of who God is. And we as believers can look at that and go, man, that's amazing how we can have a God that created that same crazy acting puppy, right? And a God that created something as powerful and deadly as a hurricane. We can see his personality so we as believers can experience God in a whole new way. And so we see that James had a man with with a prayer life like nobody else, but why did it rain? right? Why did it rain? He prayed for it to rain, and it rained. But there's a lot that happened in the middle between go tell him it's going to rain, and he prayed that it rained. So what made the rain possible? And it's this, we have to go back a little bit to 39. Verse 39, and it says, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook and slaughtered them there. That's what made the rain possible. That's what everybody thinks Mount Carmel is the main event. It's not. It's what made the main event happen which was restoration in the life of Israel. See, you and I have to understand this, that true repentance always precedes restoration. True repentance always precedes restoration. And we all want restoration in our life. For the person that's a non-believer sitting here today, you want that. You're hungry for it. You know you are. And for the Christian who has strayed, we're hungry for that same restoration process to continue. But it comes down to repentance, and we see it in 39 here of what the people did. But I'm... I'm afraid that many of us, when Elijah looks at us and goes, Seize the prophets, we're going to kill them. That we would go, Oh, wait a minute. Oh, we don't need to kill all 450 of them. That's a lot of prophets, right? That's going to be a mess. We're going to get down there in that creek and they're going to pile up. What are we going to do then, Elijah? So I'll just give you 225 of them. You can kill those and I'll keep the ones I like. I'll keep these here that make me feel good about myself, I'll, I'll keep these here that my kids need to get a college scholarship, and I'll keep these here that give me influence in society, so I think, and, and we'll be good with that, and you can just take the rest. And Elijah says, no, go and get all the prophets, all 450 of them, and we're going to get rid of them. It reminds me of a story, uh, I've got two daughters, uh, one's eight and one's six, well, she should be six Thursday. And uh, probably like you, we have grandparents who don't understand that we have limited storage and enough uh, stuffed animals for any family, uh, and so they just keep bringing more. They just keep bringing more. Neighbors give us stuff, and the kids come back with two stuffed animals, and you, know, you just never know. And so we started making them give. If you're going to bring new family members in, you've got to get rid of family members, right? Like It works with stuffed animals, doesn't work with real people, but uh, you can try. Uh, and so you bring them in, you've got to get rid of some. And So we'll give them bags and we'll say, hey, we want to donate, we're going to take these and donate. Uh, to a family that doesn't have 1,700 stuffed animals, you know, we, they've only got 100, and so they need more. And so we give them their bags, and uh, we want to teach them to give and all that, and, uh, and they go to their rooms. They're always kind of upset, but they, all, they go, and after prodding, you know, and hey, go in there. We're going to lock the door. You can come out later. I'm just kidding. We would never do that. We would never do that. Uh, and so they, they collect their, their dolls. and Maggie, my six-year-old, she, she's pretty quick to make decisions. And uh, so she comes back to me and my wife Deanna and, and gives us her bag, and she's kind of down about it. She said, but here's what I want to contribute, right, to get my other dolls, I want to give these away. And, and so we go, oh, that's, that's good, Maggie, thanks for being so fast about it. And Emma's still praying over hers in her bedroom, uh, not ready yet to, God hasn't shown her who to give away. And so she's still in there, and so Maggie kind of walks off sad, and we start going through it, and we quickly realize that what Maggie has done is she's gone and collected five of Emma's baby dolls, stuffed animals, and brought them back to us to give away for hers. All <laughs> right. And she, and she knew that it was going to be hard on Emma to get rid of those. That's why she felt so bad about it, I'm sure. But she just knew that Emma needed to give those baby dolls away or those stuffed animals away. Right? And we laugh because it is funny because she had thought through all that. But how many times do we as believers do that with our idols? And we go, hey, you can have these five, but don't take the rest of them. Right? Or you can have these that don't really cost me anything. Uh, that aren't going to cost me. I'm not going to have to tell anybody about it. I'm not going to have to really tell anybody what I'm doing here. Uh, I can get rid of them, no big deal. Right, And we go, God, you can have these, but we're not willing to sacrifice all the idols that we have. See, true repentance always precedes restoration. And I'm convinced the reason our prayer life is impotent within the church is because we're worshiping idols on one hand and turning and claiming Christ on the other. And then we look up and we go, why well, aren't my prayers happening? And it's because we've got all these little stuffed animals sitting around us, praying to God, and he's going, you've got to get rid of those first. He says, I'm a jealous God. I, I love my people, and there will be no other God before me. And we've got to get rid of the idols around us if we're ever going to have a powerful prayer life. And so see, the process, repentance starts the process of restoration. And restoration is a process. started when we acknowledge God through repentance and remove the idols we've cultivated in our lives. It's a process. Restoration in the Christian life and for the believer is a process. right? We come to know Christ, we're saved. We submit to His Lordship, we're saved. But we don't just sit there. And wait on things to happen. We've got to continue to push into who God is. Remember, probably a bunch of you grew up in a youth group. you'd go to church camp, people get saved. You'd come back two weeks later, they'd be just like they were before. Right? Because they had an experience. They didn't push into the things of God. And they're right back to seeking the idols they had beforehand. It's a, it's a process that we have to push into and cultivate. See, when the rain came in Israel, three and a half years, James tells us a drought. And when the rain came the next day, the plants didn't just pop up. Right? Livestock wasn't just restored because it rained. The economy didn't just magically boom and it was better because a little rain fell. No, it took work. It was a process. They had to get out there. They had to cultivate the ground. They had to make money with what they were doing. They had to make trades and buy new livestock. The economy had to be built from the ground up after three and a half years of drought. See, restoration is a process, was a process for Israel, and is a process for the believer today. It's that process known as sanctification. That as God makes us more like himself, he restores us. Ultimately restoring us when we pass out of this life and we join him in heaven. See, Christ offers full restoration to the weak and the weary. Christ offers full restoration to the weak and the weary. And this for me, when you think about the drought that Israel was in, it was three and a half years. Again, skin cracking, lips look nasty, right? You can't hardly blink. Everybody's dried out and skinny because they don't have anything to eat. And then you think, man, my soul sometimes feels that way. To where if I could just have one drop of water to reignite my spiritual life, man, it would do so much for me. And then you read verses like Matthew 28 and 30. says this, come to me. This is Christ speaking. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm in a dry place spiritually, when I'm in a dry place in my life, I need to hear those verses and verses like that. To go, you know what, God meets me right where I'm at. He won't allow me to stay the same. But he meets me where I'm at and he says, come to me. And I will give you rest. If you want restoration, the only place that you'll find it is through repentance. And seeking the things. A pastor, Tony Evans, as we talked about it being a process, a pastor named Tony Evans in Texas said this about Luke 24 or 12 24. Uh, it's a passage of scripture that many of us are familiar with. Uh, and uh, we read it when we're anxious, when we have high stress levels, when we're anxiety. But it says this Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? What happens is many of us, just like this, Tony Evans, Tony Evans says, God takes care of the birds, but if you're familiar with how birds act, and if you watch birds during quarantine when you had nothing else to do, they're not just sitting on a limb, right? With their mouth open waiting for God to drop a worm in their mouth and feed them. They're not just waiting there for God to come and, and feed them where they're at, but they have to get out and take care of it. They have to get out and find it. God has promised to take care of them, but they have to do a little bit on their side. They have to seek what he has given them. And so many of us, we become believers, and then we just sit there, and we go, God, now what? Like, why don't I see things happen in my life? It's because we're not seeking the things of God. Those birds that God says, I'm taking care of, and they have no worries, are getting out seeking their food. And you and I, when we become believers, we have to seek after the thing of God. That's an action, seeking. If I say, hey, you guys, go seek some lunch right now. You know I'm not going to feed you, right, because I told you to go look for it. Like, go get it. But so often in Scripture, we expect to be told, hey, go seek the things of God. Go find the things. Push into the things of God that you can grow in holiness. And we just sit there. And we go, nothing's happening. Well, of course nothing's happening. You're just sitting there. We're not pushing into the things of God. We've got to push into the restoration that God offers. So we've seen this so far. God proves himself at Mount Carmel that led the people to repentance. We see that true repentance is the start of restoration. It's the start of the process. We have to continue to push into the things of God, to seek the things of God, to surround ourselves with people who will encourage us. And then we see this, that restoration is offered to all, the people and King Ahab. Restoration is offered to all. All of us can have the restoration that God offers, that Christ offers. God offered restoration to the people of Israel, but also to King Ahab. See, he had seen this whole thing unfold. He set the party up. He got everybody there. He sent out the invitations. And then we have no reason to think that he helped slaughter the prophets. He was just kind of standing back watching, right? Like seeing how it all goes down. He was just standing around. And then Elijah comes and finds him and says, Go celebrate. There's about to be rain. And then he tells him, Rain's coming. Go back to Jezreel. And we go, What is Ahab doing here? And we see that in these verses toward the end, he said, There's a storm coming. Head back. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before King Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. And you go, why did he run before the king? Like that That's just kind of a weird place to put that, that he gathered up his garments and ran before the king. What was the point? Many commentaries, rightfully so, say uh, that it was him showing, hey, I'm a servant of the king. Because back in the day, they would have servants run before the king to announce him coming to town so everybody could get ready and they could be out there to welcome him and celebrate the king coming and so he was showing, hey I'm a servant of the king, I'm not an enemy I'm not an enemy of the king, I just want the king to do what's right but then we also see this, that what Elijah was getting as or what King Ahab was getting as Elijah ran was this Elijah running before the king was a visible representation of a God ordained leadership pipeline or structure Elijah running before King Ahab, was a visible representation of a God-ordained leadership pipeline. See, when Israel took a king on, they didn't have kings always. But when they decided they want a king like everybody else, God sent them prophets as well that led the king. So God led the prophet, the prophet led the king, and the king led the people. And so as Elijah's running roughly 20 miles, we got a map, roughly 20 miles, which is the orange line. And so Mount Carmel is up top. You can see where it says he was facing the sea because he was on the coast on a high point so he could see the sea. But then when they started running back down to Jezreel, which they say was 15 to 25 miles according to how you run it, the whole time King Ahab was getting a visible representation of how he was supposed to lead the people and live his life, which is God leads the prophet and the king follows the prophet. But what Ahab had done his whole life was he had followed idols. And so when he got back to Jezreel, he had to make a decision. Am I going to keep following idolatry and Baalism and Jezebel and all these things or am I going to take the advantage of what God has shown me today when my prophet or my God didn't even show up all my prophets have been killed and follow the one true God follow this prophet named Elijah who's following God who simply wants me to align my life with the things of Scripture see we have this today while it was a visible representation for King Ahab of the day of how God wanted him to lead and where he fell We have this today because God gave us the Holy Spirit in Scripture. We've got the Word of God here in our hand or on our device, wherever you're looking at it, but He also sent us the Holy Spirit to help guide us through the Word. When Jesus ascended to heaven, He said, I'm sending you a helper. When you become a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you to help you read the Word and understand what it means. And the Word of God and the Holy Spirit will never contradict themselves. So if somebody comes to you and says, this is what I feel like God's calling me to do, and you look at your Bible and go, that doesn't make any sense, it's not the Holy Spirit leading them. But when you have somebody come to you and goes, man, this is what I feel like God's calling me to lead my family, and I feel like God's calling me to love my wife, and I feel like God's calling me to stay pure in my relationships, you go, yeah, that's, that's right. That's what God tells us to do. That's the Holy Spirit in your life as a believer. So see, God gave us the Holy Spirit in Scripture. The Holy Spirit leads the believer, so we are led by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And then the believer leads those they have influence with. We are to be sent out. Like the Elijah's to the world, calling our friends and family and relationships out of the idolatry that they are in. Not in a harsh way. I mean, you're probably not going to set up a, uh, an altar and call fire down from heaven, right? If you do, video it. But it's, not, it's probably not going to happen. We are called to love people and remind them this is not the way God tells us to live. We are called to influence those that we love with the gospel. So We should be leading people we influence away from idolatry. Not encouraging them or joining them in their idolatry. See, for so often, it was the normal thing in Israel to be idolaters and worship Baal. It was normal. Like if you did something else, they'd, they'd say, hey, why aren't you just serving God, the, the, the Hebrew God? Why aren't you just serving Him? Like You can serve Him and others, that, right? And that's what we hear today. Hey, you can serve God and other things. You can do that. Not a big deal. You can serve God and all these other idols that we have in our culture. You can do that, but we are called to call people out of that. And go, no, brother or sister. I have one God, and it's the God of the Bible. See, we see in Psalms 14, as our team comes, Psalms 16, 4, excuse me. It gives us a stark contrast to the life of one who follows idolatry and the life of one who changes his life and follows God. It says this. Psalms 16, 4 says, The sorrows... Of those who run after another God, the sorrows of those who run after idolatry shall be multiplied. I mean it's pretty straightforward. David doesn't, right, he doesn't make it easy for us. He just says, if you seek other gods, your sorrow will be multiplied. We see that with Israel in this story. They saw they sought after other gods, their sorrows were multiplied big time. And it's the same for you and I. We start seeking other gods and wondering how we're gonna get out. Well, as long as we're seeking other gods, our sorrows will be multiplied. Now and into eternity, if we're not believers in Christ. But then we also see the contrast of that. In verse 5, it says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to show. Or let your holy one see corruption. Then get this, it says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Idolatry can't offer you that. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, you and I have a decision to make today. Believer, non believer, if we find ourselves seeking other things before Christ, we have a decision to make. Are we going to continue to seek idols and our sorrows multiply? Are we going to, as a believer, submit again to the God we say we serve so that we may experience the restoration and beautiful inheritance today, not just in eternity, but the the joy and the peace? pleasures forevermore and to the non-believer the start of the process is for you is to just commit your life to Christ and acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior see this week as we go may we evaluate our lives and are we just getting these stuffed animals around us going you know what I need these these aren't the ones that you touch are we willing to give them away and serve a God that we may have joy forevermore let's pray Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the truth of your word that is convicting and encouraging all at the same beautiful time. Where we know as believers we can trust in you for a beautiful inheritance. That you give us joy in all these things. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. We know that. God, but we know it's the best life that we can live. God, if we are here today, may we evaluate our lives. Take inventory of the stuffed animals in our lives that we aren't willing to give away. And may we submit them to you.